The point is that all throughout his life, Jacob thought he was wrestling with people. At the start of the chapter, he tells God that he is worried about Esau. In 32.11, he says, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. See, Jacob thinks that his conflict is with Esau. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, God grabs his face and whispers, Esau is not your problem, son. You need to deal with me. Jacob has been focused on all of his human adversaries. He's fought all his life with brother Esau. He spent the last 20 years of his life fighting with Uncle Laban. And now he needs to understand that behind all of these conflicts, behind all of these challenges, lay a single and sovereign adversary. Jacob has been in conflict with God. God was the author of all of these trials. Laban and Esau were merely instruments in the hand of Jacob's master. Behind them both lay the fatherly face of God. It is the father we must deal with, and he treats us sharply sometimes, both to save and to sanctify. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Behind all of Jacob's troubles lay the fatherly face of God. I love that truth. I don't always love the experience of it, but it is very encouraging to know that God is there in it all and using it all to accomplish his good purposes in our lives. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 32. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once summarized the message of the Bible this way. He said, the message of this book is really but one, two testaments, one book, one message. And the purpose of the Bible is really to deal with just one thing. And that one thing is man in his relationship to God. Man in his relationship to God. That's what the Bible is all about. And I think that's a pretty decent summary of what this chapter is all about. This chapter is a picture of man in his relationship to God. It shows us what it looks like to be guided into a reconciliation that terrifies us. It shows us what it looks like to discover who is really behind all of our trials and challenges. And it shows us what it looks like to wrestle with God and to walk with a limp on the other side. It shows us what it looks like to have a heavenly father, a father who loves us, but who can at times be quite firm with us, not to break us, but to make us his children and to form in us his character. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, the Hebrew word Mahanaim means two camps. So Jacob had his camp and God had his camp. God was marching with him into danger. That's what the word means. And that's a good thing for us to know. Listen, my friend, God's primary interest is not in your safety. 
it is in your sanctification. And therefore, sometimes God does send you into dangerous places. But here's the thing. He does not send you alone. He comes with you. This is very similar to what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, that doesn't sound safe at all. But but then he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, this is who God is. He doesn't want us safe. That's not the ultimate goal. He wants us saved. And sometimes that means shaking us up. Sometimes that means rattling our cage. Sometimes that means sending us into danger so that we learn what it means to trust him. Verse 3 says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children." But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is a good prayer. This is a good scene. This is Jacob 2.0. Jacob is still a planner and a schemer, right? Jacob is still working a great plan here. He is understanding his adversary. He is organizing the the logistics. He is managing the optics. This is still Jacob, but this is the new Jacob, the Jacob who has met God. You just need to see that. Jacob plans here, and Jacob prays here. You see the same thing in Nehemiah, right? They pray and set a guard. Faith and wisdom can go together, and you see that still here in Jacob. Jacob's still a planner. He's still working the plan. But now he's a prayer, too. I don't know if you know this, but this is actually the longest prayer recorded in the book of Genesis. Jacob's a changed man. He's still strong. He's still smart. He's still savvy. Now he's a man of faith. I think that's important to see. God doesn't obliterate your personality when he saves you. He just 
redeems and reshapes and refocuses your personality. He takes the deceit out of Jacob's scheming, but not the wisdom, not the prudence, not the strategy, not the planning. That all gets to stay. And then to all that, he adds prayer, he adds humility, and he adds faith. Thanks be to God. Verse 13 says, So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when he saw my brother meets you and asks, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Jacob has done everything he can to manage this situation. He has deployed his resources wisely. He has been generous, diplomatic, and prudent. And now he is alone. He is camped out with his thoughts before his God on the other side of the Jabbok. Now, there's a bit of wordplay that doesn't come through in the English. In, in, in Hebrew, there's some wordplay between the word for Jacob, the word for Jabbok, and the Hebrew word for wrestle, Yabbok. The idea seems to be that if Jacob crosses the Jabbok, there will be some Yabbok. There will be some wrestling. There's going to be some fighting. That's what Jacob thinks this story is all about. A showdown with Esau on the other side of the Jabbok. The twist is that before Jacob crosses the Jabbok, the fight comes to him. Verse 24 goes on to say, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Paniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob's opponent in this wrestling match is called variously a man, God, and then in Hosea 12.4, where they talk about the story, 
an angel. That can be a bit confusing. Derek Kidner explains helpfully here. He says, when God appears as a man in the Old Testament, he is usually called the angel of the Lord, a title interchangeable with God or the Lord. I think that's helpful. The point is that all throughout his life, Jacob thought he was wrestling with people. At the start of the chapter, he tells God that he is worried about Esau. In 32.11, he says, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. See, Jacob thinks that his conflict is with Esau. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, God grabs his face and whispers, Esau is not your problem, son. You need to deal with me. Jacob has been focused on all of his human adversaries. He's fought all his life with brother Esau. He spent the last 20 years of his life fighting with uncle Laban. And now he needs to understand that behind all of these conflicts, behind all of these challenges, lay a single and sovereign adversary. Jacob has been in conflict with God. God was the author of all of these trials. Laban and Esau were merely instruments in the hand of Jacob's master. Behind them both lay the fatherly face of God. It is the father we must deal with, and he treats us sharply sometimes, both to save and to sanctify. Now, this is not the only place we are taught this in the Bible. This is one of the lessons we learn, for example, from the book of Job. Job didn't understand everything that was happening to him. He felt attacked by God. He felt like he was being crushed and killed by God's hand. And he didn't know exactly why this was happening, but he knew that God was in it. He knew that God was sovereign over it. He says in Job 23.10, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. When he has tried me, when God is finished attacking me and assaulting me. When God is finished fighting me, whatever his reasons for so doing, I will be better for it. Friends, you need to see that. When bad things happen in the Bible, people don't sit around wringing their hands saying, who is doing this to me? You know, who am I wrestling with? What's going on? What demon or spiritual adversary is behind all my troubles? They don't say that kind of stuff. Because the Bible says in Deuteronomy 32, 39, See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. If bad things start happening in your life, my friend, there's only one place you need to look. Nothing comes into your life except by the word and command of Almighty God. God is telling Jacob here, that he is sovereign over all his struggles. I am feeding your sin back to you through your uncle Laban. I am making you reap what you have sown with brother Esau. I am saving and sanctifying you through my sovereign manipulations of all your struggles, trials, and difficulties. I am with you in this, but I am also against you in this. It's just you and And me, son, Esau doesn't matter. Laban never mattered. You need to deal with me. Now, maybe that sounds too Old Testament for you. 
But since God doesn't change, then we're not terribly surprised to discover the same sort of teaching in the New Testament. In Hebrews 12, it says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The Bible says, if you have never been assaulted by God, if you have no pain in your hip, if there is no big red hand mark on your spiritual backside, then you are probably not saved. God's not, God's not dealing with you as he deals with his children. God wounds in order to heal. He fights for us, but he also fights against us. That's who God is. Old Testament and New. But here's the good news. He knows exactly how much we can handle. He matches the strength of Jacob in this story. Do you see that? He he makes Jacob fight. He teaches Jacob a lesson. He makes Jacob a man. He makes Esau seem like nothing to worry about. But he knows how far to press, and he knows exactly when to quit. He's a good father. A good dad wrestles with his kids, particularly with his sons. Not to hurt them. He doesn't go full out. He doesn't knock them out cold, right? Rather, he measures himself against the growing strength of the child. Now, of course, human dads, who are themselves limited in strength, eventually get to the point where actually Johnny has the upper hand. That's when you start playing ping pong with your kids, okay? But the point is that good dads match the growing strength of the child. A good dad fights Johnny to a draw. He creates challenges that develop, but that don't destroy. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. As a good father, God will measure the affliction that he sows into your life, and it will always be slightly less than the grace that he sows into your life. He's not trying to kill you. He's trying to save you, sanctify you, and prepare you to be the person that he created you and designed you to be. That's what's going on in the story. God is making for himself a people. God says that. He says to Jacob, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. You have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This is the moment when Jacob becomes Israel. This is the touch that defined the man. Jacob was never the same after this. Physically and spiritually, he was a changed man. Verse 31 says, The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. You see, you want to remember where, when, and why God touched you. You want to carve that into your brain, and you want to pass that on to your children. This was the day that changed Jacob forever. It changed how he walked with God. And as we'll see in the next chapter, it changed how he looked upon his brother. 
This wasn't the last big day in the history of Israel, but in a very real sense, it was the first. Thanks be to God. Amen. Pastor Paul, I've got a couple of questions for you about this story. And the first one is one that I imagine maybe a first-time Bible reader might ask. Why is it that God chose to wrestle personally with Jacob to teach him the lesson that he's trying to teach him here? Why didn't he just give him a dream or maybe send him a vision? Or why choose this moment in Jacob's life to deal with him in such a spectacular and personal way? Well, that's a great question, actually, and I think you're right to identify this as a very unusual occasion. Many Bible scholars actually identify this as Jacob's conversion moment. Now, when I say moment, I don't mean to diminish all that God has done to get Jacob to this point. There has been a process leading up to this point, but this is a very significant occasion in Jacob's life, and the text makes that clear to us by making this the moment when Jacob receives his new name. From this point on, Jacob is Israel. He is engaged in an intimate relationship with God, a face-to-face relationship with God. Well, that's what it means to be a saved person. So to go back to your question, I think this is a big moment in Jacob's life, and it is sort of the climax of Jacob's journey of faith. So all kinds of special things are happening here. God is telling a story to Jacob, but also to all of us. Remember, all of these stories are illustrations in advance. They are designed by God to describe in broad detail the nature and essence of faith. What God is saying here is that he uses various trials and circumstances and ordeals to strip us of our pride and self-reliance and to position us for an intimate and authentic relationship with him as Lord just as he has done over the course of Jacob's journey. He used Esau. He used Laban. He used Esau again. He used circumstance, marital conflict, family tragedy, workplace frustration, and economic injustice, all to bring Jacob to the place where he was ready and capable of fully and entirely placing his trust in God. So when Jacob is finally ready, you better believe God is there to grab him by the face and drag him bodily up to the threshold and in through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. God has put an awful lot of work into this process, and so he is there personally at this critical moment to see it through. Yeah, that is awesome. I love that. And I imagine that feels like a really accurate illustration of how God has worked in the lives of so many of our listeners to bring them to and then through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. This is how God wins and woos a people of faith for himself. And that leads me to my second question. You mentioned in the program audio that, quote, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And then you said, as a good father... God will measure the affliction that he sows into your life and that it will always be slightly less than the grace that he sows into your life. He's not trying to kill you. He is trying to save you and sanctify you. He is making you the person he created you and redeemed you to be. You remember saying that, right? Yes. Yeah. So is it true then that God will never give you more than you can handle? I hear people say that, and then I hear other people kind of making fun of that. So help me figure out, what is the Bible actually saying here? Yeah, you're right. I I hear people saying that all the time, and then I also hear other people making fun of that. And I suppose it really just depends on what you mean when you say that God will never give you more than you can handle. 
If you mean that he won't allow you to go through difficult and even overwhelming circumstances, then obviously that's not true. God not only allows us to go through difficult circumstances, he ordains that we go through difficult circumstances. And he designs those difficulties and trials to accomplish his good purposes in our life. So if that's what you mean by saying that, then you need to go back and read your Bible. But if what you mean is that God won't allow our various difficulties to utterly destroy us, if what you mean is that God will match his strength to our strength like a good dad will do with his children, then you're just saying what this story in Genesis is saying and what the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God wasn't trying to kill Jacob in this story. He was trying to stretch him. He was trying to grow him. And he was trying to wound him. There's no avoiding that. But if he had wanted to kill him, he could have done that at any moment. But that was never the goal. He was teaching. He was healing. He was growing. And he was saving. And Jacob actually exits this trial far stronger than he was when he went into it. So if that's what you mean when you say that God will never give us more than we can handle, then you're absolutely right. God is not in the business of killing his people, but he is in the business of pruning and refining and preparing his people. And to do that, he often enrolls them in the school of affliction because sometimes there are things we can only learn in conflict, trial, and difficulty. Yeah, that's hard to hear, but it is very helpful. Thanks for that. And as always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.